All righty. Um, we've been talking about who I am in Christ, our identity in Christ, and today we're going to be looking at I am a member of God's household through his spirit. And we have studied Ephesians before, and we remember how the very first Christians were Jews. Obviously, I mean, Christianity is a Jewish religion. Uh, and yet, as, as Jesus began to spread, more and more people who were not Jews were becoming Christians. And that made kind of a, a problem for the church because it was hard for them to know what actually is it to be Christian? How does that work when you're not already Jewish and it just you step into Christianity because it's the king of the Jews? So they had some trouble sorting that out, and they were arguing about, okay, do you have to be circumcised? Can you eat pork? I, what, how does this work? What, what's important? So we're going to look at um, Ephesians 2, verses 14 to 22. And I'm already in trouble here because Dennis told me to go in, in order. Here we go. There we go. <laughs> All right. Okay. So here's, here's Ephesians 2. Okay. For he himself is our peace. This is Paul talking to the church. He himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, dividing the wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross. Sorry. <laughs> By which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord, built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. A member of God's household. Boy, that feels good, doesn't it? I'm in. I was outside looking through the windows and now I'm in. And that's kind of neat because sort of like the early church, we live in a crazy world. It's wonderful for us to be able to say, um, I'm, I know that I'm a Christian, I'm inside. And the reason I know that is because I'm built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, like Paul was saying, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And I think what that means is that I have the right beliefs, because that's what apostles and prophets do, is they teach me about right beliefs. But like the early church, I have a bunch of people saying that they're Christian and I'm not sure how this is going to work because you know, are Roman Catholics Christians? I mean, they have this crazy idea about who leads the church as the Pope and you have to do all the Hail Mary stuff. And is that, is that okay? Is that really Christians? What about gay people who say that they're Christians? 
How does that work? Or what about Christian nationalists who say that God's all about America and is that really Christian? And what about Christians being jerks online? Is that, you know, they, they're going to church and stuff? And, and what about Mormons? They've got Jesus, is it, is, but they have a different way of... And what about New Age Christians? And it's just crazy out there. It's crazy. How do I know who's Christian and who's not? And then I start worrying, am I Christian? Have I made some kind of fundamental mistake somewhere? Um... um Oh, dear. Uh Uh-oh. Because Jesus makes it absolutely clear that some people, in fact, most people, are not of his household. This is a scary thought, because not only are some people not of his household, in fact, most people, but he says many people who thought they were part of his household are not of his household. Jesus says in Matthew 7, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. That's kind of scary, actually. And then he goes on not very far after that. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Go away from me, you evildoers. This is scary stuff. People who thought they were Christians, thought they were inside, thought they were part of the household, and Jesus is saying, I never knew you. Uh Uh-uh. So who's a Christian and who's not? Am I in the household or am I out? Those verses that we just looked at in Matthew immediately follow the place where Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And we tend to think that what he means is having right beliefs about me is the way and the truth and the life. Right? And once we make that conclusion, we become obsessed with having the right beliefs because that's, I want to be inside, I want to be in the household. In fact, history of the church is full of Christians going to war with each other and killing each other over who has the right beliefs. I mean it. Is it okay to baptize babies? Is it okay if you were baptized as a baby to be baptized again as an adult? And you think, well, okay, we've got all kinds of opinions about that. People disagree, people agree, we have our opinions, we're brethren, yada, yada. But people, Christians, were murdering each other over this stuff. It's not okay to have the wrong beliefs. What is communion, the little purple liquid in our communion cup? Is it wine or grape juice? Is it a symbol or is it actually the blood of Jesus? We have all kinds of opinions. There's lots of disagreement and we we figure out what we think is the right thing and that's what we hold on to. But somebody else is going to disagree with us and they could get violent. Why? Because we want to be on the inside. We want to be in the household. We want to know that we're okay with Jesus. 
by having this stuff figured out. What did Jesus mean when he said to Peter, on this rock I will build my church? Did he mean everybody who comes to Jesus has to go through Peter's program, and when Peter dies, he's got to put his hand on somebody, and then you go through that person? Or did he mean Peter's faith? Or did he mean the declaration? That, what? And there's lots of opinions, and we want to be on the right side. Here's the thing. Because we focus on the wrong stuff, our interpretation of Scripture can lead to lots of conflict and contempt and war and murder and stuff that just sure doesn't smell like Jesus. And then it's tempting to say, okay, well, all these doctrinal things are not important. You know, it really, it doesn't matter. Just do love and, you know, whatever. Everybody will be fine. But Jesus, once again, confuses stuff and complicates stuff and makes stuff hard and makes us pay attention and think. Because Jesus cares about correct belief. When the Pharisees were having wrong ideas about resurrection and life after death, Jesus corrected them, and he pulled out scripture and said, no, look, that's wrong, this is right. And on the Sermon on the Mount, his whole shtick in the Sermon on the Mount was, you've heard it said, your theology was, but I'm telling you, you've got to move it over here, it's over here. He cares about right belief. He cares what we think because what we think guides what we do and what we do is our walk in the kingdom. But yet, once again, Jesus doesn't do what we want him to do, which is to go through the list of rules and say, okay, here's the right beliefs. Check all these boxes, hand it in, pass the test. Uh-uh. He doesn't explain very much of anything. When it comes to systematic theology, Jesus doesn't explain a lot of stuff. Even our very core beliefs, the fact that he's God and the fact that he rose from the dead, he doesn't explain how that works. We have to try to figure it out. Actually, we don't have to try to figure it out. We just That's where we're left with because he didn't explain it. He just says it and does it. I'm God, he says. Put your net over there, there's a bunch of fish. I will raise from the dead, he says. And three days later, he's walking around in a brand new body. Doesn't explain it. He just says it, and he does it. He shows it. He's not big on explaining. And to the Pharisees, who were big on explaining everything and figuring out all the details, and, you know, like if there's a rule that you can't eat pigs, well, can you eat guinea pigs? I mean, on and on, it, all these rules and stuff, they're trying to figure out what's, where's the line, where does it go? Let's see if I can find Matthew 23 here. Here's what Jesus says to them. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, the mint and the dill and the cumin, but you've neglected the important matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. And then again in John 5, verse 39, he says, you study the scriptures diligently, and boy, they did. I mean, they memorized the whole thing. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very same scriptures that point to me. However, you won't come to me to have life. 
trying to get the right beliefs and missing the life. So why do we care about doctrine? Why do we care about right beliefs? Well, because understanding the truth helps us to trust Jesus and to love God. When we understand what Jesus cares about, what he says and what he did, it's easier to trust him. We understand the truth helps us to follow God instead of following our own opinions because boy, oh boy, do we need guardrails. We are going off in the ditch and upside down with our wheels in the air in about 15 minutes if we don't have some kind of here's where God is and here's where he ain't, right? I mean, I see some heads nodding. We've all done it. That's why Paul had to explain why circumcision isn't necessary anymore. He had to kind of unpack this stuff and why Peter had to explain, here's how the church needs to interact with the world and why John had to explain, no, Jesus is God. He's not just some guy with a great idea who happened to rise from the dead. Inquiring minds want to know, and so we do this stuff. We add all these extra laws to the Torah, but when we become more interested in being right, then in following Jesus, we wind up in the ditch. Yeah. Okay, sorry. I'm not used to having the iPad up here, so I'm getting my pages messed up. Okay, so we don't really need to understand how everything mechanically works in terms of how does, how does salvation actually work? What is it actually that Jesus does which thing goes where and how did he we don't need to understand the mechanics and the workings we need to know how to walk with God we need to know God's heart so when we're doing theology we need to be sure that that's what it's for let's look at first Timothy second Timothy I'm sorry all scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. That's what it's for. So that the servants of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's why we do theology with scripture. To be shaped for the good work that God has for us. So, back to our question. Are we brethren? Of course we are. Are we brethren in the household of God or out of it? Is our neighbor in it or out of it? There was a a theologian at Fuller, I forget his name, but he came up with a system for explaining, here's how we tend to think about this stuff. Get this to come up, there we go. He developed what he called bounded set, centered set. And bounded set, like in mathematics, a set is a group of things that go together is defined by the boundaries. The boundaries is that red circle there. Bounded sets are defined by the boundaries, the essential qualities which separate things that are inside the set from things that are outside the set. And the example he used was apples and oranges. A thing is either an apple or it's not. You figure out, okay, what defines apple and you put it where it goes. It's inside or it's outside. And we tend to see Christianity as a bounded set. There are those who are outside of Jesus' teaching. Clearly, Jesus says so himself. And we think the important thing to do is to cross over that red line somehow. It is important, but it's not the whole picture. 
because we tend to look at ourselves and look at other people solely to see which side of the red line are you on. Are you inside the set or outside the set? Don't the Gentiles have to be circumcised to get in? Don't they have to follow the the food rules? Don't they have to give up bacon? Because they want to get in, right? I mean, that's the whole thing. Where is the boundary exactly? Where does it go? Well, if we look at 1 John's letter, which we're not going to put up on the screen here. I'm just going to reel some stuff off to you. And this is going to sound real familiar. If you unpack his letter, he's talking in many other th- among many other things about a real Christian. A real Christian must believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Okay? A real Christian must believe that Jesus was truly human. Okay? A real Christian must believe that Jesus is the Christ. All right? A real Christian must believe that Jesus died for our sins. Got it? Okay. A real Christian must believe that Jesus actually did rise from the dead. Okay. A real Christian must believe that Jesus is Lord. Got it? A real Christian must repent from their sins. All right. Okay. A real Christian must believe that salvation is through faith. Got it? A real Christian must demonstrate faith through their love and obedience and endurance. Got it? Okay. These things are all true, right? I mean, we believe this stuff, right? Yeah, okay. And they're all important because they help us to love God and trust God and love each other and kind of figure out what's that going to look like and how did that come from and where's the power behind it. Yeah, good stuff. But when we use these beliefs to exclude or exploit each other or punish ourselves instead of just repenting and getting where we need to go, pretty soon we cease to actually believe them and we're just, they just become things. Bumper stickers, t-shirt slogans. They no longer have a lot of meaning. When theology goes bad... We wind up doing religion in the sinful ways and for sinful regions, reasons. Let's look at John 8. All right. Where did it go? All right, I'm just going to read it to you. Let's look at John 8, verses 43 to 44. This is Jesus talking to the religious leaders of the temple. He says, Why is my language not clear to you? Because you're not able to hear what I say, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out his desires. Ow! When Jesus comes to the church and says, you are serving the devil, not me, you're devil worshipers, not God worshipers, and yet they were so focused on getting the theology just right and stuff, but they got distracted from getting the theology right to doing what it says. So how do we know which, which theology is the right beliefs? What if we guess wrong? Won't we be in deep, deep doo-doo if we guess wrong? I mean, we could easily guess wrong, right? All right. Let's look at Matthew verse 15. Matthew 7 verse 15. Jesus again is talking, Watch out for false prophets. They'll come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. So we could be tricked, we could be deceived. The experts could come to us and and lead us astray. It's really important that we have some kind of grasp on the fundamentals. 
This stuff is really confusing and difficult to sort out. I'm going to give you some examples, just tell you some little short two-sentence stories and see if you can sort this out, okay? What about a woman who was taught about Jesus but doesn't actually believe any of those things from 1 John that we read through? She's very poor, but she takes in and raises the children of her neighbor who is dying, even though she and her neighbor never really got along that well. Or how about a child who's been taught to think of Jesus as the big mean-spirited sheriff in the sky uh, who nevertheless befriends the outcast at school? Or what about a, uh, a soldier who believes all those things? He grew up in the church. He believes all that stuff. He also believes that God wants his nation to obliterate their enemies. Uh, so he bombs a village And as people, as the enemies are running out of the village, he lets them live. Or what about a Stone Age village headman who endures the contempt of his young warriors because he will not allow them to attack the neighbor enemy village while they are suffering from disease and starvation? It gets really confusing. How do you sort all that stuff out? Who's in, who's out? The Bible knows that it's confusing and difficult to sort out. The Bible tells some of this kind of stories all in amongst everything else to make us think about, but, 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 yeah, who's in, who's out? The Bible may be doing that to show us that it may not be that important to sort out who's in and who's out. Maybe something else is more important. So let's go back to that centered set that we were looking at and think about what is Jesus's criteria for sorting out who's in and who's out. How does Jesus describe where the line is, right? I mean, he's the head of the church. We'd like to listen to him. Jesus says, whoever believes in me, right? Whoever believes in me is is in with me. We tend to automatically reword that as whoever believes the right stuff about me, but we're kind of already unpacked that. Jesus isn't talking about what to believe about him necessarily, and he's not explaining how salvation works or how communion works. He's talking about here's how God's kingdom works. Here's how to walk with me. Here's the kind of heart you need to have to be walking in God's kingdom, to be living in this household to be a member of the family. Here's how you need to to do it. Okay. In John 13, he says, by this, everyone you will know, everyone will know that you're my disciples, that you love one another. We've heard that a billion times, right? That's Jesus's criteria for making an apple an apple and putting it in there. Jesus describes believe in me as loving one another, not holding certain ideas about me. So, here's a different way to look at that set. This is called a centered set. Instead of just the simple red line that you're either on one side of it or the other side of it, a center set is defined by its clearly defined center. It's all about the red dot. Jesus is the red dot at the middle. Inclusion in the set, are you inside that amoeba or outside of it, depends on whether you are facing towards Jesus or facing away from Jesus. And are you moving towards Jesus or moving away from Jesus? 
And by the way, there is no hover. You're moving, like it or not. And the distance that you are away from the center doesn't matter so much as whether you're facing the center and moving towards it or not. You notice that some of those dots are quite close to the center, but they're not inside it because they're moving the other way. Think about somebody who was raised in the church, thinks of themselves as a Christian, but they've just come to one point where they think, you know, I refuse to forgive. I'm just not going to do it. I ain't doing it. Jesus is wrong. I'm right. I'm not going to forgive. They start, they turn away from Jesus and start walking the other way. They're outside. Somebody who's a lifelong crack addict and whatever turns towards Jesus and says, I've been wrong the whole time. Jesus was right and I was wrong. I'm going to him. No matter how far away they are, they're moving towards him. They're inside. You see how that works? Does that kind of make some sense? Yeah. And there's still an inside and an outside. It's still there. And note also that the farther you are away from Jesus, the harder it is to tell whether you're pointing towards him or not. (laughs) You you might be kind of going at a tangent and you're getting closer, but you need to really point at Jesus, not just sort of towards him. Okay. So in this case, in order to be a true Christian, you need to have God at the center, not you. You may or may not know that God and Jesus are God and Jesus, but you know whether or not you're choosing towards love and justice and mercy and goodness or self-serving egotism. And you need to be moving towards God, not away. And again, there ain't no hover. We all are moving. Okay, does that make sense? Okay, cool. So... In that sort of amoeba of the centered set, there's also signposts that kind of help us to know, am I moving, and am I moving in the right direction? Am I actually going towards God? So when we take like a subject of, um, say, sexuality, there's a signpost that says, you know, this way goes towards God, that way goes away from God, right? And there's another one up here that I'm walking along, and there's a signpost that says money, This way goes towards God, this way goes away from God. And as I'm walking along, I begin to notice whether I'm more in line with those signposts or less in line with them. It helps me to get steered towards Jesus. And I can measure how I'm progressing. So having right knowledge in that sense is very, very important to my walk of becoming more and more like Jesus. Make sense? Nod your heads, yes. Okay, all right. Jesus and Paul both talk a lot about the concept of outsiders getting inside, even though they don't have the law. Jesus says in John 10, he says, I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Going back to Ephesians where we started, Jesus in his body has made everybody into one household. And then Paul in Romans says, Indeed, when the Gentiles who do not have the law do by their very nature things required by the law, they become a law unto themselves even though they don't have the law. They show the requirements of the law 
are written in their hearts and their conscience, also bearing witness and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times defending them. Right? So somebody who has never heard of Jesus and never will until they meet him face to face still knows this is right. This is not right. They might make mistakes, but they kind of know that we all have that magnetic compass in our heads and our soul that knows what's right and what ain't. Okay? There we go. Think about, the Bible explores this too. Think about Ruth. Ruth was a Moabite. And in the Old Testament, the Moabites were verboten. They were taboo. They were cursed by God to never be part of the family. And then God tells a story about how some of his people were destitute and living on the edge of nothing, and they moved into Moab for desperation because there was some food there, and one of their people marries a Moabite woman, Ruth. And she turns out to have a heart more like God's than the the Jewish people did. That's a story to think about. How does this outcast, verboten person get God? Then in the New Testament, think about the Roman centurion. He's an officer of the occupying army. All right? You're a Ukrainian and he's a Russian officer. Okay? And he gets Jesus. Jesus says, he gets me. He's got faith. He understands. He's inside. Or think about the Samaritans. When Jesus went to Samaria, verboten taboo land, and talked to a woman at the well, verboten taboo activity, and she's a bad woman, and he introduces himself. He says, I'm the one. She runs to her village. They come running back, and they get it. They're inside. They get it. So the Bible is full of examples of the difference between getting the right information and getting it. That's for us to chew on and think about. So, how does Jesus describe his household? What are the kinds of things he says? This is the very last prayer that Jesus prays that is recorded before he goes to Gethsemane and is picked up and taken to be crucified. This is obviously what his heart desires for his people. He's praying, he says, my prayer is not for my people alone, these disciples that I have around me here. I'm praying also for those who will believe in me through their message, so that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, so that they may be one, as we are one. I in them, and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me, and have loved them, even as you loved me. All right? Hang on to that. Then in 1 John... John says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. So this is how Jesus is talking about 
his household. This is how he describes it. What does that household look like? Well, I had a wonderful experience when I was going to seminary. In the seminary, we had, I think there was 19 different denominations worshiping there, all Christian, but all different denominations from ultra, ultra Orthodox, Greek Orthodox to multi-sanctified holy roller. I mean, we had everybody. We had people from, I don't know how many different countries were there at the same time. I mean, it was, we had nothing in common but Jesus. And it was glorious. We disagreed about all kinds of stuff, but not Jesus. It was, the, it was a golden time in my life. And I know I've said that before. Or, when you, how do you hold disagreements? Think about, Eric, stick your hand up. Stick, stick your hand up, Eric. <laughs> there. Eric and I have Jesus in common. If you know us very well, you, you discover pretty quickly, Eric and I disagree about almost everything you can disagree about at the level of opinion in terms of theology. We interpret stuff completely differently. And yet, I know that Eric has got my back. And he knows that I will pray for him when he needs it, whatever. We take care of each other as members of the household. We don't have to agree about anything except God is love. God, we love Jesus. Wow, he loves us. How can we share that? Right? That's the household of God. That's what it means. That's what it looks like. It's good stuff, neighbor. Marvelous stuff. So, I'm going to, I'm going <laughs> to, pardon me? <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> okay, what, so what does it mean to be one household? I'm going to leave you with a, a uh, YouTube video that I just want you to, to watch and sit with. But to start that, um, we're going to touch on 1 Corinthians, where Paul says, if one part of the body of Christ suffers, the whole body suffers. Okay, so let's watch this video.